Welcome to Faith and Science. I'm Dr. John Ashton. The other day I uh, listened to a talk by a, um, a uh, high school teacher uh, in a Christian school and she mentioned that you know, many students uh, are questioning about God and one of the questions that uh, one of the students uh, had asked this particular teacher was, how can we know that God is real? There's a couple of issues um, here with that question, but it's really a very important question. How can we know that God is real? Now, there's a whole area of, of knowing what and, and limitations on, on what we can know. Um, but we can know what we believe, and that's um, a different um, particular situation or particular case. And we believe on the base of evidence. But to know something is, is, is something that is quite definite. So we can know, for example, that 2 plus 2 equals 4 mathematically. That, that's something that we can know. But whether it is raining outside at the moment is something that we can't necessarily know. Now, we might hear, for example, what sounds like rain on the roof. Uh, we may be in a building with a tin roof and, and we can hear this pitter-patter echoing off the, uh, the iron roof. But, of course, I'm reminded uh, of a, an ad that was on television for, for corn and... Um, this uh, older couple is sitting on the veranda of this house in a really dry outback uh, Australian environment and and the older gentleman races inside to his wife and said, you know, whatever her name is, Emily, Emily, the rains have come, the rain, because upstairs his grandchildren have just bitten into this juicy corn and the corn is dripping down on the roof and it sounds like rain. So... We can look at these limitations. And the I guess this was also recognised when um, Richard Dawkins, the, uh, a well-known uh, atheist and proponent of evolution, uh, in, together with uh, you know some other funding that he got, put uh, ads on buses uh, a number of years ago, which said, uh, and he uh, the ad read something like this. I'm just going from memory. Um, there probably is no God, so don't worry and enjoy yourself. You know. Um, so, and but notice he used the term there probably is no God, because science faces the same issue. Scientists can't say that there is no God. People can't say, I, I know that there is no God, because we can't know that in the sense of knowing. We can either believe that there is no God or that we can believe that there is uh, a God. And the basis of our belief then comes back to evidence. Now, one of the problems and the issues that we have in our current education system and it runs right through from early education through to um, university, is that there's this tend now, particularly in uh, Western countries, to keep God out of education. And I think one of the reasons this has occurred is there's been a confusion in between God and religion. So religion, of course, is how we uh, practice uh, worship of, of God or how we practice our relationship with God can be termed as um, a religion. 
and of course there would be a lot of uh, uh, variation in in thoughts about how we should relate to God and uh, and what we should do there and of course we have the you know the different religions of the world but the main monotheistic religions of the world of course are Judaism Islam and Christianity and of course as a Christian the Christian basis is the the Bible now I can remember when I um, first thought about uh, the issues of whether or not there is a God and how we can get to know God. I can remember clearly asking my mother about that. How, how do we find out about God? And her reply was, well, you, you go to church. And there was a little Methodist church near where we lived. And I remember going to that church one Sunday evening, I think it was, and uh, for, the, for the service and uh, the um, minister there preached on the the need for us to accept Jesus as our saviour, that we were lost because of the evil things that we uh, had done, that we were going to miss out on eternal life, on being in heaven with God, and um, that we needed to accept Jesus as our saviour who died in our place on the cross. So um, God could forgive us. We could come to God and be sorry for our the things that we'd done wrong, and if that was genuine, God forgave us, and um, and we were right. Um, we were made right with God through Jesus' sacrifice. And of course, that was the the Christian message at that time. And he made a call for those who would like to accept Jesus um, as their saviour to come forward and. I thought, well, that's that's me, you know. I'm certainly not a perfect person, and and um, but when I die, I didn't want to face eternity in some unknown. I wanted to face eternity in a known that was described as a beautiful known, a beautiful place uh, to be, and to be with God, the Creator of the universe. And so I realised that in life we have to make this choice. Where do we spend eternity? And, of course, that was the, the big sign that was written uh, when the, um, in uh, 2000 when uh, the um, fireworks were celebrated on New Year's Eve at uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge. They, um, the main close to the program came the words eternity um, appeared in, in flaming lights on the on the harbour bridge, and it really is an important question. You know, when we die, um, what happens? Do we just rot away, and that's the uh, the end of us altogether, totally? But I think there's an intuition, though, hang on, that is not the end. And um, of course, the Bible d- describes how God is going to destroy this earth. At uh, that, God will come again. The earth will be destroyed and made completely new again. So just like God originally destroyed the the earth with a flood with the because of the evil in the time of Noah and saved people to start again, this time the evil has got so bad, the earth will be totally destroyed by fire and remade. Um, beautiful. And God will resurrect those who have died, who have chosen him, who have made the decision I want to... Um, I want to do the right thing. I want to live in harmony with my fellow man and with nature and, and with God. Um, and, of course, God you know, offers to perform that miracle to change us, that we will, will be changed if that's the choice that we make. And to me, that was um, 
the uh, an important and, and sensible thing to do uh, because we don't know when we're when we're going to to die. You know, we can have some sort of uh, terrible accident, and um, and that was and you know something can happen and that's it. That's our time on Earth here is over. But there's a couple of things we know that our thoughts are non-material. Evolution, we know, deals with the material um, atoms and molecules that, that make up. But our thoughts are non-material. Who we are is is non-material. People say, well, your brain's material. That's true. But it's our thoughts that control what we do, our thinking. And our thoughts are non-material. We can't weigh our thoughts. We can't measure their volume. We can't, um, you know, we can detect different voltage activity in our brain that our thoughts cause. But I can make a decision now as to what I'm going to say next. I choose that. I can choose to, somebody says, do you move your little finger. I can make the choice to move my little finger or not move my little finger. I'm not programmed. I can have this free will of choice. And this is, again, something that science can't explain. But again, I was faced with how do I know God is real? And, you know, how can I find out more about this? What, what's the evidence? And as I spoke to my mum about this, she suggested that um, I go up to the local Seventh-day Adventist church because they had a Bible study there of a morning. And that's when I started going to uh, church. And I found it quite interesting. And I may have mentioned in an earlier episode that I prayed my first prayer. A top scholarship was being advertised at the time, the Toxide Research Fellowship, the highest paying postgraduate research scholarship in chemistry in Australia. It paid, you know, about 25% or 30% more than the standard Commonwealth Government postgraduate scholarship. And, um, you know, I top, uh, topped chemistry at Newcastle University at the time. I had a very large chemical school because, were, you know, the largest heavy industry in Australia was located in, in Newcastle at that time. And um, anyway, I prayed my first prayer that if I won that scholarship, I'd buy a Bible and, uh, and keep the Sabbath, uh, start keeping the Sabbath day, which was part of the Ten Commandments. Well, I won that scholarship. And and that's what I did. Um, I went out uh, straight away and bought a Bible and began reading it and, uh, and began going to church. And it's interesting, as I was doing some Bible studies uh, after I'd, I'd started uni with, uh, with a Bible worker, I... Um, he said to me, because I had questions like this, you know, how, how can we know that God is real? And what his suggestion was that he, he gave an example. He said, look, if you had a friend came up to you and said, look, on, on the race on Saturday night, horse Blue Joe is, is going to win, right? And you think, oh, yeah, okay. The horse Blue Joe wins on Saturday night. So next Saturday night he comes along and says, um, you know, the horse Green Gamble is going to win. And um, so, uh, yeah, he said, yeah, fine. And uh, anyway, that's a Saturday night in the main race. The horse Green Gamble wins. And this goes on and on. Uh, week after week, the guy comes along and he tells you, you know, this is going to happen. So after a while, your confidence builds up. And um, you probably, you know, uh, I mean, I choose not to gamble. But if you're in a situation like that, you'd say, wow, this guy somehow knows the future. It's, it's working. The evidence is there. Well, 
This guy pointed out that there are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible that were given that were accurately fulfilled and on time. There are a few that still remain to be fulfilled and they uh, apply to the, the second coming of Jesus mainly. Uh, the conditions when um, Jesus will return and what happens when Jesus returns. The resurrection of the dead, the translation of the living and um, creation of the new earth. So there's a handful of prophecies, but all the other hundreds have been fulfilled. Matter of fact, Princeton University Press uh, published an encyclopedia of Bible prophecy. Uh, And I have a copy of that at home. Um, And... um, uh, I think it was published in the 1950s, my edition, something like that. Um, and, of course, since then, even more evidence has accumulated on the historical accuracy of the Bible. And so I think when we look at prophecy and fulfilled prophecy, and, of course, the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 that um, relates to King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So we know Nebuchadnezzar built the hanging gardens of Babylon. And we have an account there of a dream that um, he had, uh, but he couldn't remember the dream. But he knew it was a really unusual dream. And he asked his wise men, he wanted them to tell him the dream and what it meant. And of course, they were claiming to be able to do magic to see the future and all this sort of thing. But, of course, this was a real test. And I said, oh, well, nobody knows that. You know, only, only the gods know the future and only the gods know what you dreamt. Um, and, of course, so Nebuchadnezzar said, well, you guys you know, are earning your keep under false pretenses. You can't really do what you claim to do. So he threatened to put them all to death. And Daniel, who was a Hebrew captive who had been selected to uh, join the elite school, well, was to be included in those executed. And he and his friends prayed to God that God would reveal to him the dream. And God did reveal the dream. And he was able to tell it to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar knew then that he could interpret the dream. And God gave him the interpretation of the dream. And you can read it for yourself there in Daniel chapter 2. And we need to remember that Nebuchadnezzar lived, you know, sort of 600 BC thereabouts. And... These prophecies relate to what happened right up into the present time, relate to the structure of Europe and the empires that would follow the Babylonian Empire. That's pretty impressive stuff. And that's, you know, these are prophecies, again, that we have clear evidence that the prophecies were written down well and truly before they happened. And this is different to the lot of claims that we have, you know, people can tell the fortune and all this sort of thing. And um, often think to myself, well, why aren't these people, you know, multi-millionaires? You know, surely they can tell which horse was going to win, you know, um, and, and this sort of thing. But this is different. God makes the claim in the book of Isaiah around about chapter 43, 44, somewhere like that, that what sets me apart as God, he said, is that I know the future and I can tell the future to you. So that's, um, and when I heard that, and I began literally looking up the history of those prophecies. So, you know, I was studying for my PhD in uh, in chemistry at the time. And um, so I was well into, you know, science and, and, of course, had the resources of the university library there to look up and really delved into the history of the Bible and, um, after after a year, I, I chose to be baptised and accept Jesus as my saviour. And I think that, that that's the 
the evidence. We have a whole amount of evidence now that the Bible is is true and that these prophecies are true. And we have a lot of evidence for the existence of God, that God is real. Now, this evidence comes from personal experience of people that have prayed to God, have seen answers to prayer, have seen miracles performed in terms of answers to prayer, and know the changes that praying has made in their own lives and in the lives of their families. They've actually experienced it. They've, um, they've, uh, they've seen it uh, happen. And, um, uh, you know, as one uh, American mathematician, um, his name just escapes me at the moment, uh, I might think of it at a moment, when he was uh, explaining his belief in God, um, and well, it's in terms of answers to prayer and miracles as he's experienced. And, of course, the naysayers are the fellow scientists, um, um, you know, sort of commented, well, you know, how do you know it's a miracle, you know? How do you know it wasn't just a chance event? And this guy replied was, I was there and I saw the circumstances and the environment and the setting in which this happened. Uh, Robert Harriman was his name. I knew it had come back to me. He was uh, one of the professors of um, mathematics at the US Naval Academy. And, of course, there are many great scientists who believed the Bible. Right? And so, as I said, we can't know, but we can believe. And there's a lot of evidence that our belief is correct. And there was a book that uh, was put out by Anne Lambert, um, a few years ago, called 21 Great Scientists Who Believe the Bible. And, of course, they include Joannes Kepler, who was an outstanding astronomer and a committed Christian, uh, Robert Boyle, uh, one of the pioneers of modern chemistry, who was actually a leader in Bible distribution. Of course, there's Isaac Newton, who was a scientific genius and uh, a very committed creationist. And, of course, it's interesting the attempts that they have to try and discredit Newton and, you know, try and make him out um, a bit insane or something like that. I've seen articles like that that have been published in some scientific journals. How, Because he was such a, you know, a powerful Christian, he wrote commentaries on the books of the Bible, including commentaries on the prophecies in the book of Daniel and Revelation. And I have copies of those. And, of course, he was such a brilliant mind. And uh, so, of course, the naysayers and the atheists want to try and discredit him however they can. But, uh, of course, he stands up to that. There's Carl Linnaeus, the eminent botanist who believed the Bible. Leonard Euler, the great mathematician and faithful Christian, took them a long time. I think Euler's uh, theorem has now been proved from memory. Uh, he was a famous uh, mathematician. Um, and uh, George uh, Cuvier, who was an outstanding biologist who opposed evolutionary thinking. Michael Faraday, the pioneer of electric power, who again was a very humble Christian. There was Samuel Morse, the inventor of the telegraph, who was a very active Christian. Charles Babbage, the, uh, one of the originators of uh, computing. Uh, he was a very uh, committed uh, Christian as well. Of course, Matthew Mary, and I've given a talk on him in the past, the pioneer of oceanography. Um, and, of course, um, you know, he got his ideas of ocean currents um, from the Bible uh, descriptions of the pathways in the sea. Uh, James Jewell, the great experimenter, 
who again was uh, guided by God. And, of course, we had the units of heat in joules. Louis Pasteur, uh, another outstanding scientist um, who was strongly opposed to evolution. Uh, Gregor Mendel, who was the father of genetics. Uh, He was a, a Christian as well, believed in God. Uh, Lord Kelvin, or William Thompson was his name, he was an eminent physicist who again opposed evolution. Joseph Lister, um, one of the originators of modern surgery, um, again a, a man of God, a Christian. And of course, uh, James Clark Maxwell, one of my scientific heroes, um, who um, you know, developed field theory, um, proposed that light was a combination of electric and magnetic fields. Absolutely brilliant scientist. Einstein built on his work, and of course he's the pioneer of electronics and a very, very strong opponent of evolution. George Washington Carver, the agricultural chemist who was guided by God. Uh, the Wright brothers, Wilbur and Orville Wright, were also strong Christians. Werner von Braun, uh, one of the pioneers of space exploration, was an active uh, Christian, and um, of course there are, you know, so uh, many today who, um, um, uh, and there are many other, uh, Louis uh, Agassiz, who was a glacial geologist, Um, Francis Bacon was into scientific method, Uh, David Brewster, yes, I remember him, Um, he was a professor of physics at uh, Oxford and um, a very strong um, uh, Christian. Uh, matter of fact, the angle of the rainbow uh, is called Brewster's angle, uh, the angle of diffraction in water. Um, and there are so uh, so many other uh, Christians that um, we could uh, look at um, that were Bible-believing Christians. Humphrey Davy, uh, John Herschel, uh, Joseph Henry developed the galvanometer, um, William Herschel, um, who uh, discovered Uranus and so forth. Um, William Huggins, of course, they're, uh, again, um, related to uh, physics. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the theory of probability and so forth. Again, a very, very strong Christian. Um, Then, yeah, we could uh, go on. There were so many scientists in the past. Um, James Young Simpson, who used chloroform and was a, a, a leading gynecologist. Um, Nicholas Steno, uh, that developed stratigraphy in geology. Uh, George Stokes in fluid mechanics. All these guys were Christians that believed uh, the Bible. And um, one of the uh, textbooks that I used at school was by, a uh, uh, university rather, uh, implied mathematics was... Um, uh, a textbook by C.A. Coulson. And, of course, C.A. Coulson was a, an eminent Methodist a professor of applied mathematics at Oxford University. And um, in his book, and it's a, a really brilliant book, Science and Christian Belief. And, again, he deals with this um, uh, topic. It's, uh, the book is described as one of the most profound studies of the relationship between science and religion that have been published to that date. And um, what uh, Coulson points out is that the order of physical nature is one aspect of God showing himself to his children. 
And so we see this powerful order in nature. And of course, that's what we associate with design, the overwhelming evidence of design. You know, when we get into the biochemistry of the human body and our immune system, digestive system, you know, we... We eat food, we just take it for granted, but the way our system takes the nutrients out of that food, they're all complex chemicals, all mixed up, all bound together, breaks them down into individual components, then sorts them in our body, sends them to the different places, the different organs in our body where they're used uh, to keep us alive. You know, the design is just huge. The design of the reproduction system. I mean, they're still studying the birth process in in human reproduction. And uh, the amazing switches that occur and hormone changeovers and mechanisms that are all triggered. Uh, There's so much there. And uh, C.A. Coulson goes on to point out, you know, Max Planck, one of the developments of quantum theory, ends his scientific autobiography with these words, religion and natural science are fighting a joint battle in an incessant, never relaxing crusade against scepticism, against dogmatism, against disbelief, against superstition. And the rallying cry in this crusade has always been and always will be on to God. So here we see some of the uh, you know, important statements there that the top scientists in the world had faith. And many of these guys got their ideas through the impressions, I'm sure, of the of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Um, there's another really good book that sets out, see, so many people don't understand what science is. Science has become like a, a de facto God in a way. But when we delve down into science, science cannot produce the answers that tell us whether or not God exists. That's the bottom line. There's a very good book that was written by A.F. Chalmers, and it's called What Is This Thing Called Science? It was published by University of Queensland Press a number of years ago um, now. um, I've got the second edition that was published in um, uh, 1987 um, as as a reprint. And he, he really sets out the major problems that people have when they claim, for example, try to claim that, as the defenders of science typically do, to, they judge it to be superior to other forms of knowledge without adequately investigating those other forms. And so that's what Chalmers write. Um, as a matter of fact, Feyerbrand said essentially that. That uh, and he points out that Freyaban complains with justification that defenders of science typically judge it to be superior of other forms of knowledge without adequately investigating those other forms. And uh, Feyerabend, of course, was not prepared to accept the necessity of the superiority of science over other forms of knowledge. And that's, of course, where I said before, the evidence that we have in terms of answered prayer, fulfilled prophecy, the change um, in people's lives, plus we have the overwhelming evidence of intelligent design. All these point to the existence of God, and in particular, the God of the Christian Bible. You've been listening to Faith and Science 
And, of course, if you want to re-listen to this program or listen to some of the other programs, um, just Google uh, 3ABN Australia, that's all one word, .org.au and click on the radio button and you can listen to these programs. And remember, there are many other programs as you scroll down on the different topics that support faith in the Bible. I'm Dr. John Ashton. Have a great day. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 